0: Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Our guest this week is Dr. Robert Karp. Dr. Karp is emeritus professor of pediatrics at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. A native Philadelphian, he is a graduate of Central High School, Muhlenberg College, and Thomas Jefferson University Medical College did his residency in pediatrics and fellowship in nutrition at New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center, and completed training as chief resident at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children in Philadelphia. He stayed on the St. Christopher's staff in a War on Poverty school health and nutrition project. His 14 years in Philadelphia are summarized in his 1993 text, Malnourished Children in the United States, Caught in the Cycle of Poverty. The remainder of his active career was in Brooklyn at SUNY Downstate, where he was director of residency training and service clinics at Kings County and SUNY Downstate hospitals. While at Kings County, he read a study from 1962 by Harold Jacobsenner and Harry Rabin describing the epidemiology of lead poisoning in New York City. Many of the children attending Kings County lead poisoning clinics were from the three lead belt neighborhoods in North Brooklyn described. More recently, with publication of FHA Maps of 1934, he recognized that the same neighborhoods as being redlined. His commentary on this connection, redlining and lead poisoning, causes and consequences followed, and was recently published in the Journal of Healthcare for the Poor and Underserved. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Karp. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your research. Well,
1: thank you. Thank you. Uh, for inviting me, I appreciate this. I'm honored to be invited to be uh, a participant in uh, a podcast from Johns Hopkins University.
0: Wonderful. The first question we like to ask all our guests is Can you tell us your academic origin story? What is your specific area of research and how or what brought you to that area of academic focus? Okay.
1: I graduated uh, college in June of 1962 and took a year off before entering medical school in September of 1963. And it was really quite fortuitous for an idealistic young person uh, to be on the streets of Philadelphia at the peak of the nonviolent civil rights movement. Um, During the year, I worked as a substitute teacher to pay my own way. And on weekends and those days when I was not called the substitute, I spent much of my time at the Philadelphia chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality, known as CORE. At that time, CORE was focused on massive racial discrimination against Black Philadelphians in both housing and employment. Um, and I participated as, as a young, young fellow would participate. And my assignment for the uh, trip to Washington, the March on Washington at the end of the summer was to find buses and we filled 13. Uh, so one week after the March, I was a student at Jefferson Medical College, quite a transition. I didn't have a clear goal for my future, only that I wanted to do something in public medicine, uh, what we would now call uh, care for the poor and underserved. After graduation, I, I began a residency in pediatrics as an intern at New York Hospital Cornell University Medical Center in New York. And the following two years, I was a fellow in nutrition working for, uh, at New York Hospital under a National Foundation for Birth Defects grant. Uh, this was during the war on Vietnam when uh, there was a mandatory dra- draft, and I could not be a pediatric residence because I had applied for conscientious objector status. And wow. I, received, I received conscientious objector status, in fact, that, that fellowship, the time in the fellowship and my work there was my alternative service. I completed my um, pediatrics back in Philadelphia as chief resident in pediatrics at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children, which was part of the Temple University uh, medical school system. And the next 14 years were spent as a pediatrician in various war and poverty projects. The most important and the most long lasting was a school health and nutrition project in Philadelphia public schools, six public schools where children who had been in Head Start uh, came. And our goal was to maintain the strengths that they, the strengths of their experience in Head Start. And, and the academic elements of this work, there was uh, academics and I'll describe those later uh, were summarized in a text for which I was principal author and editor called Malnourished Children in the United States malnourished children in the United States caught in the cycle of poverty. And it was published in 1993. Well, the next 28 years after the war and poverty experience was at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. It's the state university hospital. Uh, I had been recruited to direct a high risk social risk uh, clinic at Brooklyn's municipal Kings County hospital. we took care of children, teenage mothers, their babies, low birth weight infants, uh, children with tuberculosis and lead poisoning was a very important part of the project. We had a state mandated grant. Um, now, you asked me about my areas of research, um, and they were basically uh, in, in medicine and in any academic career, really. First, you publish something and then you become a mini expert, well, very small <laughs> level, and then you follow mm-hmm. the path that goes. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I, I continued my work in, nutri- in nutrition, and, and, and there, the first work really continued through my career were malnutrition and poverty relationships, the origins, so identification, consequences, interventions. As I said, my first work uh, was in the Head Start program in Philadelphia. Uh, 78, listen, it's important to describe how effective Head Start was. 78, 80% of the children in these six schools, and there were several thousand, uh, lived in families with incomes below the poverty level. It lived Mm -hmm. 70 to 80%. And yet, the majority, the majority of the children, uh were reading and had math skills at national average which is quite an quite an accomplishment from head start Mm -hmm. and our job was to maintain it which we did and these kids did well documentation from head start shows that children graduated high school went to work paid taxes and stayed out of jail which is really something that changed with the end of head start Uh, but there were about 15 to 20 percent of the children who weren't doing well and they weren't really uh, experience, the gains you expected from Head Start. And these have mm-hmm. some common, one or more of three conditions. One was lead poisoning. Second was iron deficiency. And the third mm-hmm. was protein energy malnutrition. Now, my own work was with the, with the latter two, iron deficiency and protein energy malnutrition, at least uh, at that time in Philadelphia, only subsequently. Um, and uh, now our clinic, our clinic at Downstate, included a lead poison prevention program. And at that time, I read a paper by two New York City epidemiologists, Harry Jacobsoner and Harold uh, Rabin, and they described lead belt neighborhoods of Brooklyn, the ones that sent our patients to our clinic, and they were Crown Heights, Bedford-Stuyvesant, and Fort Greene. And in 19 19- 1962, the first nine months of 61, there were 42 children at least with lead levels above 60 micrograms per deciliter. And for those not familiar with lead poisoning, Mm. that's a level which is associated with convulsions, encephalopathy, and death. And in fact, Mm. uh, Jacob Ziner and Rabin reported 14 deaths in the city in New York at that time. Now, this was before, of long before I arrived in in Brooklyn. And this is the origin of my current uh, commentary in the Journal of Healthcare for and Underserved, having to do with lead poisoning in neighborhoods. Um, Now, my academic focus on iron deficiency uh, began in my residency or my chief residency when I read a passage in the Nelson textbook of 1969, that said, that iron deficiency did not occur at early school age. Iron deficiency mm. did not occur at a school age, and I said no. I don't think right. this is true. And okay. so, um, and so, so my first paper was. This is the first paper I published on my own uh, while I was at Cornell. Uh, mm-hmm. I did the work of my uh, uh, of my, my supervisor, my mentor which was on growth of kidneys, actually. <laughs> okay. What happens when you take out one kidney and uh, to the growth of the other kidney, which is a kidney disease and very important. I, I'm sure you don't want me to talk about that. <laughs> I certainly don't. <laughs> I, I guess I could if I read the paper again. <laughs> any case, so here I'm going to read a couple papers, if you'll pardon me. The first paper was Iron Deficiency in Families of Iron Deficient Inner City Children, and that was published in 1974. And that was followed by the School Health Service as a means of entry into the inner city family for the identification of malnourished children. And then a paper that I think is, was, was actually very important, which was the effective rise in food costs on hemoglobin concentrations of early school age children. I showed that with the uh, oil embargo of 1972, there uh-huh. had been a fall in hemoglobin levels and it's a, it's a, something we hadn't seen since the great depression that is, as uh-huh. food costs rise uh food selection narrows uh, right. foods uh characteristics of higher income disappear there's a high concentration of calories and a diminution of nutrients uh-huh. and children became iron deficient now the final work in the series this is now 2012 uh, my last thought paper while working was demonstrating nutrient cost gradients—a Brooklyn case study—and and this paper showed that whether you judge it by cost per serving or cost by energy, iron, folate, and choline are the most expensive nutrients, and they're the ones that are essential for neurodevelopment. Iron in utero and choline and folate are important for maintaining pregnancy, and one of the mm-hmm. reasons we see uh, early uh, uh, early delivery and low birth weight in poorer families is there's an absence of folate and choline in the diet uh, I think that I think I covered the points in your uh, that you asked me specific area of research and what brought me to my area of academic focus including a mention of how sort of not quite there yet with the uh, paper on uh, on lead poisoning
0: right and 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 that's exactly where i was i was going to go next which is your your essay your paper in the um in the journal of healthcare for poor and the underserved what it looks at is uh public policy in the united states dating as far back as 1898 mm-hmm. to trace how housing regulations uh, have directly tied into lead poisoning rates in children. Um, why, could you explain to our listeners, why is it important to understand how this failure in policy, this sort of uh, sort of um, non-tangible thing has had such a profound effect on the health of children and residents in this country?
1: Okay, well, first let me fill in a little blank. What I noticed in 2019 or so was that mm-hmm. the FHA published its redlining maps and I'll be darned. Okay. These were the same neighborhoods, Fort Greene, uh-huh. um, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Crown Heights. Uh-huh. My first thought was that redlining caused lead poisoning, but it's uh-huh. not that simple. That's an oversimple. What happened was that the federal government's failure to to regulate lead, to allow lead in the environment was the uh-huh. first cause. The second cause was that the redlining took what was permitted, that is, racial segregation, and mm-hmm. codified it and made it obligated, transferred um, voluntary segregation uh, by realtors and individuals, and made it the law that neighborhoods would be segregated. And then the last thing was that the local governments did not restrict access to apartments Uh, uh, without having them inspected, which is now the law in Mm -hmm. New York City or and many other Mm -hmm. cities, I think most cities now. So that was how it happened. Uh, So let me start with the poisoning of lead itself. Uh, You have to see why lead is such a toxic substance. Um, Mm -hmm. um, Lead is a divalent cation. It has two charges and it follows other divalent cations, two charges. In the circulation, the body has no unique character, no ability to recognize that lead is lead, It recognizes calcium and takes the divalent cation lead into the bones where lead is stored, Mm -hmm. into the deciduous teeth of children, which gets to how it was recognized, um, and follow and, and stunts growth and affects probably kidney function that way. The major one for neurodevelopment is iron. Iron is Mm -hmm. an essential nutrient for the central nervous system. Many central nervous system uh, are uh, catalyzed. Enzymes are catalyzed. Monoamine oxidase, cytochrome oxidase are catalyzed by iron. And there are nuclei in the brainstem. Uh, Very important in terms of the hyperactivity problem of lead children because the brainstem controls activity. Um, mm. And these are these are, are lead is iron is stored there. And when you are lead poisoning, lead takes the place of the iron and that's how it ah. causes its toxicity. Sure. So now in terms of how this was understood, uh, it's a very important principle in statistics in medicine that you never, you can never take associations alone and say that mm. Because two things are associated, associated that one causes the other. Sometimes you get it backwards. Right. People, for example, <laughs> people, for example, believe that rather than alcohol causes uh, mental retardation, it was accepted through the eugenics period that uh, mental retardation causes alcoholism. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. reverse causality, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's coincidence. So the the case. The, the definitive case was made by a, a, a extraordinarily important person in in uh, pediatrics and toxicology herbert needleman and he did uh, something called the tooth fairy study now i mentioned that that lead is stored with calcium and calcium goes into the deciduous teeth the teeth that are shed mm-hmm. and he collected teeth from children in boston
0: okay it's
1: called the tooth fairy project they got a little something for it. Um, mm-hmm. And then he had two ways of measuring it. Uh, first was um, the teachers made a subjective evaluation of each child. What does this child like in school, How in, in the classroom? How are they doing? They also did something objective. It's, uh, he used either the Connors or the Vanderbilt score, I've forgotten which one, for attention deficit disorder hyperactivity. And so they did a rating of hyperactivity. And then the schools did a battery of tests. Uh, I don't like using the term "quote unquote." I'm doing air pops here. Uh, I do, <laughs> uh, but the measurements of development that were used uh, mm-hmm. on all the children, and uh, and then they then they compiled the data, and it was just astounding how they lined up. Every single parameter lined up with the lead levels. The, mm. the the lead level predicted how the child did in the Connors hyperactivity, how well it did in the developmental tests of math and and English and whatever, and processing. And it also also lined up with the teacher's subjective evaluation of what this child was like. That was a major study uh, to which... um, Herb was, I, I, I knew him personally, so Herb, Herb was excoriated. He was, he was, he was subject to enormous pressure. Uh, the University of Pittsburgh, where he was on the faculty, a suit was brought and he was called before a committee. No one found that he ever did anything wrong. Some of the data analysis did not meet the highest level of analysis that people were expecting to have. It was very much like trying to prove that the uh, smoking tobacco uh, caused lung right. cancer. It was that, there were a lot of forces that, that didn't want
0: it to be true, right? Well, right. Well, it's an imprecise,
1: it's an imprecise measure. I'll get to some of that when I get to the deep grass of how environment is affected by lead poisoning and how lead, how the mm-hmm. child is affected. So, uh, because not everything occurred, some children with lead poisoning did better than others, mm-hmm. and there were children without lead poisoning who did worse than others. So that there's no doubt about that. There was a similar study in Australia in a a mining community. I don't think it's necessary to go through that, but it came out with exactly the same uh, data. So uh, the public policy issues here related to first allowing lead in the environment. Uh, There's a very important person in the history of toxicology and in women in medicine also, Alice Hamilton, who lived at the early 20th century, I think up into the 50s, she was quite long lived, an amazing figure. And in 1911 or 12, she published a paper showing the toxic effects of lead in adults, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. working. And, and then in 1925, when the, then it was, uh, the idea was presented that lead should be put into gasoline, into mm-hmm. gasoline, which is a cheap way of increasing the octane, and the knocking quality, much cheaper than actually refining it to a higher level. There, a committee was formed by the Surgeon General. And interestingly, the history of it says that the committee was heavily weighted by representatives of industry. And yet the committee said, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. This stuff is, this." they didn't write it this way. This stuff is very really dangerous. <laughs> That's not how they wrote it, but that's essentially what they said. It's really dangerous, but they allowed it. Anyhow, they allowed it anyhow, and they did allow it and lead in paint. And, uh, you know, lead based paint is amazing. You can cover a black wall with one coat of white paint. If it's lead based Mm -hmm. and lead based paint is 50% lead by weight. So the fingernails, a fingernail, a fingernail, thumbnail, a uh, size of lead would poison a child. Would poison a wow. child. So uh, those were the those were the lead part. Now the 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 redlining issue is the other part on the other side of this equation. One is the the lead in the environment. I, I didn't mention the uh, po- public policies, and this gets into landlords and the and the, and the powers that they had to keep renting apartments that were that were contaminated, although it was well known what that did. And, and uh, what that meant was, because because not only couldn't you couldn't, a, a black person could not live in a, in a green, blue or yellow coded area. And they had to live in red areas and the red areas not only didn't they get loans, but you couldn't get loans to repair either. You could not get loans to repair. That meant there was a concentration of people living in housing that was, by definition, deteriorating. So you had exposure, and if if it was an old house, as they all were at that point, actually there no I take back. I'm going back to an era. When there were no restrictions on lead-based paint, and also there was a high degree of traffic going through these neighborhoods, the children were going to be lead poisoned. And so um, there is a pa- there is a graph in the paper showing uh, that all poor children were were had more were poisoned more than uh, higher income children. Children from poor families were more likely to be at higher lead levels than people from uh, from uh, from more affluent families, and all black children were uh, more affected by than children from similar incomes uh, similar incomes. But what's important to notice is that all children were lead poisoned at that time. They all were. Every child in the United States was. It's fair to say. I can say categorically, if you lived in the United States at that time, you were lead poisoned. And that's a characteristic that you see, actually, with almost every public health issue, that everyone is affected and poor and black are most affected. I think the most most, uh, striking issue is lack of universal health care.
0: Can you briefly explain what redlining is for our listeners who may understand its definition, but not necessarily its wider generational impact?
1: Let me, let me, let me quote uh, William Julius Wilson here, uh, the, the, the most profound commentator on these issues. Um, the enduring effects of slavery, Jim Crow segregation, public school segregation, legalized discrimination, and residential segregation Uh, of Black neighborhoods by the FHA and policies in the 1940s and 50s. These policies have had a profound influence on the experience of current generations. And of course, now you throw in the question of lead poisoning. Wilson is describing the social environmental effect. But we want to look at the redlining of the the lead poisoning effects puts a biologic characteristic Now, there are many people who have commented that there's an association between, there's a a, a role of lead poisoning in the difference between white and black and school performance and and these IQ measures and other things. Uh, the, The data have never been clear enough for that alone to make a cause and effect model. But if you create a cluster model where you say, here we have the biologic effect, which is Lead poisoning, mm-hmm. and you have the social environmental effect, which are the things that that, uh, that Wilson said. Then you have then you have a case to make, and I think the impact on schools are worth noting here. Uh, if you take if you have a school that's has some children some children who are educationally disadvantaged whatever you mean by that term uh-huh. educationally disadvantaged they don't come to school quite ready for school a school where there are say three or four in a class of 20 the teacher can do a great deal the school can do a great deal but if you're like in a a friend of mine as a principal in, in a, a inner city school and only two percent of the children are coming prepared for for school. Uh-huh. Now, if you have a class where there are 20 children and 18 of them are not prepared, the school is overwhelmed. Uh-huh. So you have the, the the biology of lead poisoning and you have the social environment of cramming children into impoverished neighborhoods. And we it's ghettoization. It's ghettoization. That's what ghettoization has done. Um, to to these families and leads to transgenerational effects
0: beyond the redlining what are some other factors that you cover that are affecting the the consequences of lead poisoning i know it's 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 sort of got a, a just a sort of exponential ripple effect
1: one thing you, you you have to look at is what it has what it means to the country as a whole to do what it did Uh, You'll see a description in the paper of a direct quote from a a researcher, Lewis Lee Woods. Uh, He said, um, as documented by Lewis Lee Woods, despite the fact that one in 13 or 7.69% of all World War II veterans were African-Americans, these former servicemen only received 0.7% of VA mortgages. Now, looking at the actual dollars, you can actually look at the actual dollars. Uh, A house in Levittown, New York, at that time, using today's income would be about $70,000, which was about twice uh, a working man's yearly salary and quite affordable. Right now, a house in Levittown is $400,000. So there are two things. One is it's no longer affordable by a, a, a working man. Uh, at certainly not at that level, as it as it costs so much more, but also there's at least a three hundred thousand dollar deficit to any family that was denied the right to live in Levittown. Yeah. But in fact, it wasn't simply that they that they couldn't buy, but even if they could buy, they were faced with violence if they did buy. So the effect of racial segregation uh, was codified. The fact that what was permitted now became law is catastrophic. And, and we still had the underlying unwillingness of the white population to accept uh, African-Americans, Black people as neighbors in that mm-hmm. time. They all, fit, they all fit together. And so redlining is, is, is a piece of a large puzzle. It's a very significant one. It's one that tells us how deeply we have failed. And it touches on the fact that this isn't just prejudice, but it is structured. It is structured into the the society at large. It isn't just people's prejudice. It was was the law. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that will affect people's lives greatly.
0: How do you respond to those who challenge the assertions that you've made with an argument, hypothetically, such as if racism and poverty and lead poisoning are you know such destructive forces how do you explain the success of this person who who grew up in all of those things and is now you know wealthy and successful and and doing well and living the american dream what do you what do you say to someone who brings up these exceptional arguments well
1: please appreciate that that could be asked in two ways mm-hmm. it could be asked by somebody who's generally curious and say well you know i i can see that redlining and racial prejudices are wrong mhm what explain this, and it also can be used by somebody who doesn't really buy into it. And said, "Well, if that's the case, what about? Oh, I don't know. What? What about? You know, you can name a, any person. I, I have, I have several things. In judging the consequences of a of a problem, you don't go to the extremes. You look at the median effects, mm-hmm. and the major, overwhelming majority of children." who were affected by redlining and lead poisoning had catastrophic effects. One might look at why that why some people uh, succeeded. That's very important. What is it that we could do to mm-hmm. help people succeed? And you also have to look at why people didn't, which is what, of course, you, turns up when you study lead poisoning. The second thing is lead poisoning and everything else I've talked about is a mediator and not a modifier now by Uh mediator by modifier i would say this if if you put your foot on the brake you know you're going to slow a certain rate when you put your foot on the gas pedal you're going to speed up but lead poisoning isn't like that lead poisoning is a is a mediator it's like rocks in the road you're driving down the road and there are rocks in the road you don't know what will happen you may drive right through or you may end up crashing off the side because it depends on how it affects that particular ind- individual. the mm. biologic specificity that has to be considered. And you right. also have to can look at the protective effects that this child has in this family and this social environment. Um, I'm always struck when I read biographies like James Baldwin, W.E.B. Du Bois, how there was always a pivotal person who's provided the help that that person needs to get their way through. And uh, I think every, everyone has a responsibility to do that. And it, looking at people, and then you don't have to worry so much about cause and effect. There are people who do great things, who don't believe a single word of this, but they know it's their responsibility. You don't have to believe a single word that I've said, and, and still go out and do something to help people who are in need. And uh, I always appreciate when people, I'm sometimes more comfortable with people who disagree with me who do the right thing Mm -hmm. than people who agree with me who don't do anything.
0: Right. Amen (laughs) to that. I agree.
1: I've experienced that. I try to do the right thing myself.
0: Lead poisoning is, you know, it's is it still a danger to the children in the United States? And and what progress has made been made recently uh, with legislation to remove to remove the threat? Sort of, where can you give us a snapshot of where are we now?
1: Well, where are we now is with the residual of a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Lead is lead is in uh, is in water, and mm-hmm. it's in pipes and it's in ground highways. Every highway was spewing lead to its environment and the soil around it. Mm-hmm. So it's an ever-moving target. There was a crisis many have read about in Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. where the town, where the state reversed the flow of a ver- reversed the very slow-flowing f- Chicago River, and the muck and the detritus of that, that river ended up in the water supply of mm-hmm. Flint, and children were poisoned that's happened elsewhere, it could happen again and again and again. It requires vigorous, vigorous enforcement of lead rules for preventing lead in the environment and substantial uh, cleanup. Newark, for example, is replacing pipes, replacing its pipes uh, to make sure that lead is not in uh, the pipes that deliver water. And there are multiple other ways. And there are reports now that with the uh, COVID Pandemic and children at home, lead levels did increase because they were mm-hmm. spent, children were spending more time at home, and there is still is residual lead in apartments and houses. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, the, this the, this crosses uh, economic lines, racial lines certainly, but economic lines too, because old houses will have lead in in the uh, older houses will have lead in the paint. And, and every family is uh, subject to it, but it gets into the question of uh, began with where you cannot have a policy that only protects that 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 uh, is narrow in particular, you have to have a universal policy for for lead poisoning that affects everyone. And then you have to take care of the special considerations of, of the most vulnerable which in this case has traditionally been black and poor and uh, non-white, uh-huh. but everyone is affected. Uh, I, a very important work was done looking at, at environment. Um, it's the deep weeds of this, that, that Uri Bronfenbrenner, a, a magnificent figure in, this, in the study of, of psychology, described environment in a two by two table what's big and what's small and what's close and what's far away. Uh-huh. So up close, the, 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 the proximal micro environment is the family. And of course that's enormously important. Um, the proximal macro environment are the schools, the child goes to, and then the, on the distal side, you have the the you have the the social environment the, the of the of the child. The element that we've been talking about is that last category, which is the distal macro social. Distal <laughs> macro social. Okay. If the macro social means how do these policies get made? Who mm. says that there should be schools? It, who should be schools at all? Who said there should be Head Start? Who says that? Uh, who says that? The size of the classroom. Who says whether there's a library, and that's the that's the policy. And you have that is where the redlining came in. It Uh it took a public pol and made public policies that worked terribly uh, uh, to the disadvantage of people who were poor and black.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and I'm 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 very grateful that your that your paper has been made open access so that anyone uh, who wants to read the further details can do so uh, regardless.
1: Oh, thank you and once again it's a real honor and privilege to be able to do this.
0: This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.